Wan smoke, broken, old home. Won't you come out to play? Begged the Fay. Oh, bright ones, what fun at the bottom of the lake, the pretty Nixies claim, and the fluttery sylphs say, Come with me, spread your arms, leap from this cliff, fly free. No, the caves are more fun. Come, wander these tunnels, beckon the biddy kobolds and the wee small brownies, and the stone-faced trolls, they do not speak. They only grimace down their noses, grinning happily as they smother your family under rocks and lee. Song of the Fairies, a Sealand nursery rhyme. Lying bound and splayed atop a converted apothecary's guild work table, it occurs to me that what we're doing might be insane. I get flashes of Edgar's amputation with a wood-splitting axe, the hard, wet thud and the sizzling cauterization, the stench of melting flesh and boiling blood. Don't be a coward, booms my voice of conscience, loud and clear ever since I retrieved the eye of Amgene from beneath the Hellgate's mountains and the old king's keep. After a month's exposure to its sage advice, I wonder how I ever got by without it. Every hour of every day, it pushes me in the right direction, motivating, warning, even mocking me when I let time or opportunity go to waste. Just now, though, even its voice can't penetrate the noise of my heart pounding like a thousand axe blows. I tilt my head back to look at an inverted domnol and ask, You're sure this will work? He glares at me with sagged, wrinkled cheeks down a red wedge of a nose, puffs out the pale yellow chest of his apothecary's robe, and by consequence, his gray, greasy, chin-strap beard. How else is one to gain insight from the eye but to integrate it into himself? Eyes on the inside, it only makes sense. That's how it is with the lapis, says Nostius. You take the rotundum into yourself to transmute the prima materia. That would sound a lot more convincing if you two could actually make the alkahest, I reply, skeptical. The comment must sting, because the journeyman alchemist grimaces, his teeth yellow as his robe, his pockmarked face just as pale and the mess that his hair so dark, his sleepless eyes look like a couple of bruised sockets. How about this? The worst that might happen is you'll lose an eye, but that's still better than being blind in both, right? He says it as if pain and suffering aren't costs of their own. And what if the wound festers? Or if the eye doesn't fit? I feel the weight of it resting in my palm, the smoothness of the smoked glass we encased it in to dim its constant searing glow, reduced now to a singular ray piercing through a keyhole. Remember why you're doing this, whispers my conscience, to unlock the true potential of the Eye of Amgene. It's what I've been working so diligently for, the power to destroy and reconstitute the world. Not even the wise patriarch of the Union Church can do that. Only the spirit Amgen, the great enigma, to be like a god. The thought stokes my anxiety. I look to Verva, head of the newly formed Marigold Mystics here in South. She's a dark ashen river reed of a woman made skinnier by the ridiculous crimson costume robe she always wears. It makes it difficult for me to take her seriously. I have to ask, you're sure you can do this, and quickly, I add. With the certainty of a practiced hand, she begins. I've performed the scrying ritual more than a hundred, perhaps more than a thousand times. I've plucked the eyes from dozens of different creatures, from to newts to hounds to goats to mules, from little fish to huge bucks, even from horses. For the farmsteaders who reside on the bank of the Silver Quick are not so prejudiced nor as envious of our secrets as is the Union Church. To the contrary, they are the truly wise ones who seek out our wisdom. No other institution boasts such power of divination but for us, the marigold mystics, the keepers of deeper magic, the... 
and on and on and on she goes. No better than when I first ran into her in Maddox Wine Tap. Spirits, that was so long ago. I don't even feel like that same person. And who I was then, I don't even want to think about. I turn back to Nastius and tell him, I'm ready. Give me the drugs. He nods and pulls a crown, clove, and coca-soaked rag out from a cauldron, covers my nose, counts the seconds. One, two, fourteen, fifteen. And before I know it, there's a buzzing in my ears, and in my blood causing a tingling in my shins and forearms where the novices have me pinned to the converted work table. Now! I hear someone shout, but the voice sounds distorted, and when I try to see who called out, a pair of icy hands prevents my head from moving. Then a pair of soft, hot fingertips press the lids of my eye. They pry and hold it open against the dry, itchy air until tears flow and the ocular muscles exhaust themselves in spasmodic attempts to lubricate the surface. My vision blurs, but I can just make out Verva looming over me. She's saying something and touching my hand. You have to do it yourself. I remember the weight there, the smoked glass eye and its keyhole of light. She says something else. Be ready, Lord Canty. And for once, a marigold mystic told the truth. Her hands are practiced. Before my numb tongue can babble my unpreparedness, her fingertips plunge fast, nails slicing as they clasp and pull in a single movement. My body jerks in response, though Nastius's concoction dulls most of the pain. It's the shock that gets me, my heart and lungs racing so that each rapid spasm is more hypoxic than the last. Then suddenly, my muscles release, and I'm drifting to sleep when a dulled slap strikes on the side of my face. It's my own hand. You have to do it yourself, my conscience screams. I try again, this time consciously slamming the eye of Amjean into the socket. Then there is darkness, and after darkness, dreams. I'm seated upon a throne of iron cushioned by the skins and furs of Fay. They're warm, subtly reacting to the metal frame, burning away so very slowly. Every few days they'd need to be replaced. No matter. The dungeons are crawling with elves and fairies of all kinds. I'll have a few undying slain in the morning, their skin is always the softest, but such comforts do nothing to sate my true hunger. I rise, and at once my subjects rise with me, their chains rattling the length of the hall. Kobolds, pathetic creatures born to be slaves, I command a few to prepare the skins tomorrow and leave the rest to their servitude. All bow down and obey with hatred in their eyes, though in their spirits there is no courage, no resistance, no strength. They will serve until their fetters finally drive them mad or poison their blood. The gnolls clean up the latter, then off they go to capture more. But this cannot go on forever. An army of hobs and a veil of miasma cannot rule the realms of men. It can only erode them, slowly and terribly, until my kingdom is naught but dust and decay, and monsters starving having finally drank the last drop of their host's blood. No. What I need is the true power of the Eye of Amgine, I think, climbing the thousand stairs to the top of the observatory. From within the great windowed chamber, I meditate on the frigid northern sea and on all the lands touched by the South Long River Deep. Villages and townships ever on the verge of rebellion. They sing songs besmirching my name and send foolhardy assassins to slay me. Ungrateful wretches. Was it not me and my father who freed them from their own degeneracy? The things they brought forth, diseases of the flesh and of the spirit, they would bring about again, will bring about if I allow them. But with the power of the eye, I imagine the liars, 
the beggars and thieves, the whores and the murderers, the lame, the lazy, and all the lesser races consumed in inescapable fire. No man could hide from the true sight of Amgine. No bystander could ignore the horrible wailing, the price of failing to live prosperously, if only I knew how to channel the power properly. Waking, the scenes, so vivid just seconds ago, become shadows of memories, though I can still feel the urge to domination. Then a pain surges like lightning from the right side of my brain, terminating on the left behind my eye socket. That's right, a madwoman tore it out, and I replaced it with, I bolt upright, one eye closed to the anxious onlookers. Did it work? asks Nostius. I pretend not to hear, afraid of the answer, and Verva and Domnall leap to my defense. Spirits, why have you cursed me with such a skeptical apprentice? Of course it worked. But you're the kind who needs to see it for himself. No faith in your superiors, though I suppose it's what I should expect from a former gin-running orphan. Yes, the mystic jumps in. How dare he doubt the Lord's mysticism, his knowledge of the occult, his mastery over pyromancy? The alchemist shakes his head. I've already told you a thousand times. The black flame is mundane chemistry. You can ask Kanti yourself. And what does it have to do with our surgical experiment? Domnall chides, a skeptic and a fool, eh? You must be, or else you would see the answer staring you in the face. And to think I vouched for your seat at the guild table. The black flame is a ritual union of opposites. Now that he has the necessary insight, this troglodyte has become the undifferentiated vessel. He could easily manifest the transformative substance. What in hell are you talking about, old man? But before the wizard can catch his breath, I hear myself answer, though I know not from where... The power of Amgen, it's the Alkahest. Not you too, Nostius scowls. So am I to assume it worked then? And that you can explain what the Black Flame has to do with any of this? I don't know, I start. But then Domnall cuts me off. Ignore my green apprentice, Trog friend. He's just jealous of our accomplishment. You've done in a month what that up-jumped street rat couldn't achieve in years. It must be in your Trog blood. You're a true alchemist. Nostius's pale, pox-scarred features harden. His eyes darken as he glares back and forth between me and the wizard. What I couldn't achieve in years. That is bollocks, old man, and you know it. If it weren't for my discoveries about miasma and transmogrification, your alchemical work would still be baseless theory. You'd still be in Marigold, relegated to piddling with the rats at the back of the research lab, or else comatose on gin and poppy tea. And can't he? He's transmuted nothing. And not only that, but without my masks, he'd never have even found the eye in the first place. You got that, Lord of the Black Flame? Without me, you'd have been dead before you ever stepped foot inside Marigold. So don't go calling yourself an alchemist. You don't deserve it. I didn't think anything could make this migraine worse, but I was sorely mistaken. That struck a nerve, sent a jolt of brain lightning, whirring like a rock against the back of my eye socket, left a taste in my mouth like a fistful of salt. So it's unadulterated reflex as I spit back into Nostius's face. Lay off. I didn't call myself anything, and don't forget that it you'd still be stuck under the thumb of the church if I hadn't shown up in Marigold, you, you, you thin-skinned dimwit, I add, not knowing what else to say as I swing off the work table. Nostius staggers back as do the two novices who'd been holding my legs. They're staring at my face, mouths agape. It takes a moment before I realize that both my eyes are open. It worked. Domnall sends his journeyman and the novices out of the laboratory, tries the same with Verva, but she refuses to go. 
at least until I tell her that I'll need help walking home. My body is still numb from the triple anesthetic, but I'm not about to rest overnight in this lab. I want to show Broken that what I've been working on has finally become a success. I can't wait to see her face for the first time. I hope she'll be impressed. But you can't leave just yet, blathers the wizard. We've only gotten started. We haven't even attempted to transmute the Alkahest. With your insight, if we just light the black flame inside you, then perhaps... This time it's me who cuts the old man off. I have no idea what you're talking about, and honestly, I don't care. So you can run your experiments by yourself eating cinnabar and charcoal. Tell me how that goes, and I'll let you know when I've tapped the power of Amgene. Bah, he says. You're no better than my apprentice. Why, oh spirits, do you surround me with skeptics? How do you expect me to complete the opus when all you give me are women and troglodytes? Wait, where are you going? I need you for my experiment. Domnall's voice carries out onto the street in front of the guild hall where Virva is waiting for me. It's past midday now, blindingly bright, yet cold as the icicles glistening from rooftop eaves. Sledge tracks and those of studded iron tires slash the snowy street where roving merchants from Berg have passed. The rest is pocked with footprints of pedestrians, as many as I might guess would be out on an old summer's day. How quickly South is changing. And to think, I wouldn't have noticed half of these differences just a month ago. I wouldn't have seen the apothecary's horrified faces either. I'd still have my headdress. There'd be no reason for their faces to contort, my own hidden behind the blanched bones of my ancestors. Yet it's just the opposite now. I've made my trog mug even more repugnant, and that fight with Nostius didn't help. Forget the alchemist. You've gotten from him what you needed. Pain strikes my socket, sharper this time than the prior brain lightning. I close my eyes and throw my hood, enter into familiar darkness, and follow the mystic as she leads my numb body home. Lord, she starts as we depart the guild hall and cross the open market square. Her tone is demure compared to its usual grandeur. Thank you for tasking me with today's ritual. It was an honor to serve true progress in the mystic arts. I'd roll my eyes at that if it didn't hurt so badly, but it does, so I make do with a sigh. I didn't think I'd ever see the day I'd be replaced as the disgrace of Village South. Yet with the mystics in town, obvious charlatans that they are, touting stage tricks as if they were real occult magic. You'd be forgiven for mistaking me for a regular yokel. Long gone are the hateful, hushed remarks, partly because of the influx of immigrant marigolders, the other part thanks to my reputation among the miners, or coal trogs, as Maddock called them. There are always some stumbling drunk around the market, rain or snow, since the hell gates closed. A few spot us and holler, It's the Lord of Fear, and he's got a lady with him too. You there, citizen? You got a license for that woman? shouts another doing his best grant impression till the third clouts him with a snowball from the sound of it. Oi, you're embarrassing his lady. You got her all flushed. You dolt. What's she got to be embarrassed about? It's just cold as all. Snow crunches as the second miner rolls a ball of his own, grunts, hurls it at the third, hits the first who cries out, Justice Lord Fear, show these two coal trogs flame. No, wait, hand them over to Seer Broken instead. Let her put their souls in their places. The latter two beg, No, don't do it, Canty. We'll take the flame. Just don't let your girl turn us into newts. Or toads. Or ghouls. Yeah, I sigh again. A little louder this time, hoping to give the impression that I'm annoyed. 
Then I make sure to tell the mystic to ignore them. As much as I enjoy their friendly banter deep down, I don't want her going off on another tirade either for or against them. My head couldn't stand it, though I don't fare much better as she replies, As you command, Lord of Flame. And stop calling me that, would you? I have a real name. Of course, she says softly, and then with a bit of her usual force, As you command, Canty. I steal a glance to check that she isn't being sarcastic, but discover something else in the subtle wrinkles of her face. Behind the black curtain that is her hair, and the shadows it casts over flushed, lined cheeks and sunken eye sockets, hides an open mystery. What could have brought this woman to waste her life on delusions of power, prestige, and grandeur? What was it that made her so desperate for some sense of control over her own destiny? It puzzles me for a while, though my conscience is gnawing at me like I should already know the answers. Maybe it's the drugs keeping me from thinking clearly, or maybe it's my aching head, though the migraine has lessened since we left the market for quiet of the village neighborhood. It's a much more pleasant place in winter. The odor of mildew and manure gets buried by the snow, and from every chimney there's the sweet scent of smoke and hot cider or turnip stew or peppermint tea now that the apothecaries have established themselves. Somewhere, a dog barks at a deputy who sneezes and curses aloud as he drops his partisan. Other than that, the only sounds are our steps crunching the snow and the howl of the wind blowing, rattling shutters and branches as we cross west into the forest. Virva! The questions tumble out of my mouth before I know what I'm asking. How did you end up joining the mystics? And what made you interested in the occult in the first place? Power? Money? Vengeance? Or what? We walk on for a moment before she responds. I think I've caught her off guard. We've only ever had terse interactions before today, and this is the first I've ever asked her about herself. Stealing another glance, I see she's bright pink again, holding her eyes ahead on the low-hanging boughs and high roots hidden beneath the blanket of snow. The river! She starts, then stops, takes a deep breath, trying hard to suppress the emotion into her throat, as she tells me about where her parents lived, outside the city walls along an irrigation canal, the last to be cleaved into the once fertile soil far out on the northwestern side of Marigold. Pewter farms they call those poisoned fields for the filth that builds along the banks of their waterway. Though her parents weren't farmers, they weren't even locals. They'd come from a dying village off Sealand's west coast, whose name they never told her because of a curse they claimed had been placed over it decades before. She explains that under pressure by the Union clerics who arrived each month to convert and thereby pilfer tithes from the poor villagers, they'd ceased making offerings to the Fae and gave that very wealth away to the wise patriarch instead. What followed was starvation, then hob transmogrification. The church had to send in a champion and shield maiden to clear the place out. What was left, anyway? Verva's parents were one of few families who escaped alive. How they did was another secret they withheld, though this one she learned in time from her younger sister. Neve, the mystic, says her sister's name with trepidation, and not just the name, but the relation sister as well. At first, I assume some bad blood must have fallen between them, but nothing could be further from the truth. You see, Neve happened to be born under a new moon and with certain marks scarring her face. 
In Marigold, when this happens to a girl the same day a boy is born under the sun and with the same kind of scarring, the two become adoptees of the Union Church. The pontiff pays their parents and sees to their training, and in the end they're made into shield maiden and champion. For Verva's parents, poor, incompetent sharecroppers on loan from the city council, this seemed like a blessing from the divine. But to Verva herself, it was as though her sister's shadow swallowed her whole. Every morsel to grace her bowl and every stitch of her clothes were thanks to Neve and to the Union Church. Not a day passed for the first thirteen years when her parents forgot to remind her of that. During mealtimes, her mother would often utter, If only I'd had your sister before ye, then mayhap you wouldn't be so skinny and we could marry ye off to one of them city folk. I, her father would agree that, If only my seed had been so strong when I was younger, I wouldn't have to toil o'er these fruitless pewter fields. Useless mouth is what they meant. Or at least that is how Verva took what they said to her day after day after day after day, and worse on those occasions when Neef came home to visit. It was as though the church had crafted her sister from starlight. How fair they'd made her speech and dress and hair, as if she'd been born a pure-blooded marigolder and not to lowly native Sealander parents, like Virva. The mystic's only solace was that, being a few years older, she had reached adulthood, and could therefore volunteer for service of her own. And that is how she escaped the shadow over her home in Pewter Farms, going door to door to each of the guild halls to see if any of them would take her. Of course, she tried the church first, but was firmly denied. The others treated her much the same. After all, she had no education, no training to speak of. What use would the masons, or the golden anvil, or the apothecaries, or the silver spool, or even the marigold banker's guild have for her, who could not labor, nor read, nor perform simple arithmetic? Only the mystics had welcomed her warmly into their ill-tolerated cabal of loony pagans and charlatans. For the first time, Virva felt like she had a family, and for the first time she was treated with respect, nourishment, and dignity. The mystics taught Virva her letters and how to speak so as to garner attention. They showed her their tricks and shared with her their secrets, of suggestion, of deception, of subtlety and sleight of hand, how to turn mundane powders and flasks of spirit into smoke and mirror magic, more than capable of gulling the masses. Over the course of two years, she absorbed everything the mystics had to offer, including their enmity toward the Union Church. Though whether she really got her hostility from them, or if she possessed it from the beginning, Virva still isn't certain. I guess it doesn't matter. She never got out of her sister's shadow. Neve was killed on her thirteenth birthday, in broad daylight in front of her parents, the pontiff, and every churchgoer gathered beneath the great glass dome that roofs the Union Church's antechamber. That night, under the same new moon which brought her under the tutelage of the Patriarch's wisdom, she was meant to be blessed with the white veil and dress of a shield maiden. Instead, during the midday sacrament of the man who was to be her champion, that self-same scarred Union Church warrior, black lacquer masked and adorned in medallions of gold, took hold of his iron shield in two hands, dropping its silver moon-engraved pair onto the floor, and swung the sun-embossed slab like a sledgehammer down onto Neve's unsuspecting head. She was a doppelganger. No one except Virva's parents knew, and probably even Neve never suspected that her mother and father had made a deal before her birth. They bartered with an Undine, a Nixie, 
who resided in what's a now nameless stretch of Brook West off the Silver Quick. They traded for safe passage out of a land cursed to wild darkness, infertility, and dearth. Their next-born daughter would be exchanged for a child taken from some other misfortunate couple and already made into an elven shape-changer. Had Neve seen the first night of her maiden menses, her soul would have completed the transmogrification, and she would have become a full-blooded Nixie herself. But that didn't happen because she confessed to her champion that morning, so he claimed after slaying her in the church without warning anyone that her blood flowed blue and black, that she told him that she could hear the river beckoning, that she didn't know whether she could follow through with their oaths. None of that mattered to Virva. Neev was her sister, her idol, her goal. The mystic's whole life had been nothing but trying to shine brighter than her sister's shadow. But now, without her guiding star, she drifted rudderless in a sea of darkness. Her sister was gone, nothing left but a shade in her memory that no light could brighten, just as nothing could lighten the weight of what her mother said. If only I'd had your sister before ye. Her father agreed. Aye, then it would have been ye in place of our precious Neve. That was the last she ever heard from either of them. For all three, her mother, father, and the champion-to-be, were executed on charges of conspiracy with the fairies. Verva was spared only because the church had no official record of her residence, which means her parents never reported her, likely to avoid the taxes, which means that to the city, Verva never existed until she became a member of the Marigold Mystics, abandoned by everyone except a bunch of charlatans. And now it all makes sense. That's why you're so desperate to discover real magic. The words escape my mouth before I realize what I'm saying. Because your only family left are a bunch of fakes. They're liars and illusionists. And you're afraid that one day their use for you will vanish no different than one of your mystic tricks. That is, unless you make the magic real. That's it, isn't it? You think that if the occult can be true, then so too can your relationships. All this out of fear of being abandoned. You're the same as broken. Verva stops our trek, dead in the snow, and all at once the cold rushes into my toes and fingers, and my cheeks and nose burn where the chill winds blow. I throw back my hood anyway. It's worth the discomfort to see the truth of what I said written in the lines of her face. But what I find instead is ice and snow, needled boughs and deadwood, and her pale, pained stare over the white riverbank as if the undine from her story might rise out of it any second. And yet she doesn't. Not after a second's passing, nor ten seconds, not even after a minute of just me and the mystic and our awkward silence. It makes me cringe, and the wincing around the eye brings on a tingling like a bolt of brain lightning is about to strike. Anxious, I think that maybe if I start babbling to fill the space, there won't be any room for the pain. So I say, or perhaps it's simpler than all that. Maybe you think you can bring your sister back. Bad idea. Resurrection is almost as difficult as it is dangerous, and you never get what you expect. And if you don't believe me, just ask around town about Vaughn Bilar. You're better off trying to find the real Neef that got traded away, assuming she didn't meet a similar fate. Verva. The whole time I'm talking, she never looks away from the bank. She hardly even blinks until I said her name. But then a deluge of tears precipitate as she tears her eyes away from the river and lays them to rest on my hideous trog face. Is there any tragedy that I don't make more painful? I think of Bilar and Maddock and those poor miners stuck out in the cold. 
of Nastiuses and Domnals bickering, of how broken confessed feeling alone and abandoned, afraid that I'd leave her for new friends, and now this. But then, Verva takes me by surprise. She smiles and says through the water in her voice, Thank you, Lord Canty. Thank you. Thank you for what? For listening to my story. For seeing me for who I truly am and yet remaining willing to look me in the face and... Her voice breaks. She sniffles, dabs her cheeks with broad crimson sleeves, breathes deep into her chest and composes herself. Then calmly she says, Thank you for the compliment. No, for the blessing of being compared to your seer of black flame, though it is an honor I don't deserve. I wasn't half so strong when I was nearer her age. They say she is a necromancer as well as a master of the pyromantic arts. My younger self would have been jealous. Perhaps that is what you gleaned with your clairvoyance. Phantom memories from when I was thirteen years old. Yes, it's true that for years after Neve's death I became desperate. I tried everything in my power to restore her to life. Every incantation in every intonation and pronunciation with every arrangement of every shape of magic circle known to us. When that didn't work, I thought that maybe the other Neve, the one exchanged for the sister I'd known, could fill the hole in my heart. So I tried divination with smoke and bones, with stars and crystals, with blood and tea's leaves. Yet in the end, all of my efforts amounted to nothing. I became despondent and soon after gave up. Since then, I've had two decades to mourn. I accept now that my true sister, the girl I looked up to all my upbringing, died twenty years ago on the floor of the Union Church. So no, Lord Canty, I do not seek to undo what's been done. You spoke truly at first. I want to be valued, to be useful to someone. That is why when you said, she pauses, tearing up again, her voice progressively becoming possessed by its usual grandeur. When you said, I am like broken, I thought, does that mean you will take me on as your apprentice? I know we are but children in your arts. Without your guidance, we can't even get a pigeon's leg to twitch or a spark lit from the salts and powders. But if you'll have me for your servant, Lord, I promise I'll learn everything you want from me and more. So you'll take me, won't you? You'll show me the true way. It was a mistake not controlling my tongue. Don't get me wrong, her story is sad and all, and it's not like I'm unsympathetic. In fact, that's the problem. The weight is too much. Suddenly everyone expects me to be more than just a crown-peddling trog when I've never been anything else as far back as I can remember. Yet isn't this what you wanted? Admiration and fear, asks my voice of conscience, but I don't have an answer ready, so I lurch back to give myself space to think. Virva's almost on top of me, ranting and raving when I stumble over a branch buried in the snow. She catches my hand as I'm about to fall and sets me upright again. I'm really regretting asking her to help me home. Lord, are you hurt? Is it the drugs, or was it... You know, I cut her off, embarrassed. I think I can make it the rest of the way alone. Why don't you head back to your guild hall? Practice those incantations a few more times with your own people. I'm sure you're a lot closer to success than you think. You don't need my help. At once, the mystic's fervent expression fades and ages as pale as a ghost. She falls to her knees right there in the snow and begs me, Please, don't abandon me, Lord Canty. Teach me your secrets. I promise that I can become a useful servant. Another jolt of pain pierces my skull like a wand blast through the eyeball. What are you doing? I hear myself respond, angry, aggravated. Get up right now before you make yourself sick. But she continues her groveling. Please, she repeats. You and Broken are the only ones who know true mysticism. Without you, I am nothing. We the mystics are nothing. 
A second jolt strikes mere seconds after the first, like the bolt that starts a forest fire. I curse aloud, my voice echoing throughout the woods. Damn it, woman. I told you to get off your knees. Don't bow to me. I can't teach you anything. I don't know anything. Didn't you hear, Nastius? The black flame is just a bunch of powders, and it's the girl, not me, who knows anything about magic. I can't cast any spells. I can barely fucking read. I'm just a piss-poor, glorified, drug-dealing coal miner. I'm not a lord of anything. The pain subsides with my flash of rage, yet the echoes linger a while longer playing among the surrounding trees. Slowly, Verva stands and puts some distance between us, a few steps that crunch in the snow. I see, she says, almost a whisper. Her face has become ashen, the open mystery resolved with the shattering of her hopes. My apologies, Canty of Old Home, for burdening you. I won't do so again, I promise, and I'll tell the other members to leave you be as well. Now if you'll excuse me, she says, turning away, crying. Likewise, I turn to hide my face, too ashamed to see her leave in such a sorry state. But then I hear her call my name. Wait, there's one more thing. I stop and say nothing, just turn and watch as her gory hand emerges from a long, broad sleeve clutching between two fingers the pale eye of a troglodyte. This belongs to you. A third pain strikes, though this time it sends my stomach roiling. I don't want it, I say. Then what shall be done with it? I turn away and start stumbling numbly toward the vault. Throw it in the river for all that I care. Just don't go thinking it will help you. I make it the rest of the way home on my own, though it proves a real struggle. Every few feet I'm tripping over roots or my sword's getting tangled on the low-hanging boughs. Did I forget to mention the sword of old Ogier? I got it scabbarded and belted as soon as I could and have been wearing it ever since. Broken doesn't approve. Something about it being cursed by the old king's spirit. Though with the eye of Amgine, I think I'd know if it was housing a ghost. Anyway, after the first few snags wading through the woods, I draw out the mithril blade and hack away the thinner branches. It feels good to slash the obstacles in my path. I try taking on some of the thicker ones, botch the cut a couple times till my conscience corrects my edge alignment. Feel the pummel, you fool! It's shaped that way for a reason. Adjusting my grip, I let the wide, flat piece rest against the bottom of my palm. Just as my conscience said, the stout, broad blade comes to life in my hand. I can feel the angulation of the hilt, the direction of the point and of the edges, so that on my third try, I slice right through. And it's not just branches the sword helps with. What I said to Verva is true. I can't cast any spells. Hell, I can hardly read or write. But I have been learning, and according to Broken, at an alarming rate. At first, I assumed that was just the eyes doing, but my conscience told me otherwise. It said that the sword is a symbol of power, and that practicing spellcraft with the weapon in hand would exert greater dominance over the bedlams of chaos. Maybe that's what's been causing the migraines, all that potential energy pent inside me from the eye. I want to believe it. The whole time I'm slicing, never once is there any lightning pain. Only a slight soreness in the socket from the surgery as the crown and coca wear off, just in time. At last I arrive at Black Lake, only a short way left to go around the partially frozen basin until I'm safe in the caves. And warm, finally. Only now that the anesthetic is wearing off and the slurry on the lake edge is soaking my boots do I realize how cold it is. It makes me glad I built that door for broken sake. I wonder if she's got a fire going for her and Chaka, but when I look toward the cove to check, 
A north wind blows and kicks up a cloud of powder, then turns my face toward the lake. In it, I glimpse my reflection. One white eye and one of black glass with a pupil of glaring light, the rest like a skeleton with skin stretched over. Sickly pale, thin lips and nostrils. Hairless. Hideous. I wish I'd have been able to find my headdress on the way back from our underground expedition. The ghouls or Maddock must have smashed it to pieces because I could only find fragments in our hurry to the surface. Don't harbor such sentimental weakness, it's pathetic. I slide open the vault door, another ugly thing only a blind man could think is beautiful, and enter a room of utter darkness. That no lamp or lantern or candle is lit means to me that Broken's already gone to sleep. This is how it's been the past few afternoons. I come home late from the guild after hawking coal and crown at the market exhausted and sleep a few hours short of morning light. By the time I wake up, she's already gone. Out into the forest, I presume, to practice her magics in command of Gerard. She used to take Chaka with her as well, though it's been a while since then. Nowadays, I come home to hear him scratching at the walls of the vault's deep tunnels. Makes me wonder what he's after. But just now, all I want to think about is sleep. I drag my feet through shadow toward my new bedroll, and on the way stub my toes on a stockpile of salt and coal save for the curio trader we met in Marigold, Van Edwin. Rumor is that a number of peddlers from Berg are on their way south for the winter. Moreover, more of them than usual are making the extra effort east before visiting the bigger cities. They're loading up in south to sell our coal around the country as the colder months bluster on. The counselors and the townspeople will be happy, I'm sure. Doesn't do anything to help the pain in my toes, though. I lay down with Ogier's sword cradled in my arms, afraid to put it away lest my migraines attack. It keeps the pain at bay, yet sleep never comes. Instead, I'm laying here listening to the instruction of my conscience. The eye is settling. Yes, now if we could just find the power inside your soul. But there's so much murk, like an ocean of troubles. You'll need a clearer conscience if we're ever to find it in all this darkness. Troubles? I'm loath to know what slew of issues might be swimming in the depths of my soul. The crown shows me more than I like already, and there are some things that are better off buried. Too bad nobody can explain that to Chaka. Every few minutes I hear him scratching away at some pile of rubble. It's amazing Broken hasn't woken up given how loudly and terribly the sound echoes throughout the vault. Eventually, I can't take it anymore. I stand up and grope for a lantern. I want to see for myself what in hell this miasmatic hob is longing after. It takes a while in the dark to find the candle lantern and more than a few tries with the striker before it finally lights. It's even longer before my eyes adjust, my trog eye at least. The eye of Amgene transitions instantaneously from dark to light. The difference in vision makes my head ache, dull and mundane. Seems the sword can only help with supernaturally induced pain. It certainly does nothing to stop the sinking feeling I get when I see that Broken is nowhere to be found. My first reaction is panic. I worry that maybe the hob has eaten her, and that perhaps all his scratching has been him burying her bones. No, that's not right. Her pack and belongings are gone as well. But what does that mean? Calm yourself, fool, my conscience scolds me. It means that the girl wanted to leave and that she left. Nothing more. But what if she was kidnapped? I hear my voice echo. I sound like a frightened mum. My conscience responds. Does it look like there's been a struggle? No. She must have gone on her own, so stop your blubbering. You've got more important things to be dealing with. She's gone? 
I reply, a sudden sadness enveloping my body like a cold, wet blanket. The lantern and sword in my hands become heavy, too burdensome to carry, as do my arms and legs and my disgusting trog head. I'm such an idiot. I realize she's probably been gone for days without my notice. Days. I may never find her again, and if she went of her own volition, she may never return. She doesn't want to come back. I drop the sword and lantern on the floor and stagger, slump against the nearest wall, and listen to Chaka's fevered scratching. I am alone, a pain that no amount of crown can cloak, so much worse than the bolts of lightning like flashes of light inside my brain now that the eye is part of me. I see the fragility of happiness, fleeting, shattered in my grasp, embedding razor fragments. Everything I clasp becomes a rended ruin, and for what? What am I even after anymore? Who am I if not the Lord of Fear? My conscience doesn't answer, so I do. Just some degenerate coal miner who drove away his friends. Someone better off dead. I make the gesture with my hand, remember the click of the trigger, the clink of flint, the ping against the powder pan, the hiss of ignition, the explosion. If only it wasn't just my imagination, I think, falling asleep, crying, alone. When I wake, it's to a knocking on my door. The lantern has burnt out. The only light shines from the seam of the ramshackle wall. Bright white daylight. How long have I been unconscious? Twelve hours at least. No, it has to have been more. The knocking sounds louder, followed by a voice. It's one of Grant's lawmen. Oi! Trog! In the name of the old king, open up! I drag myself to my feet, then my body to the entrance. Without a word, I slide open the door. Whatever the law has in store for me, I'm sure I deserve it, so I'm surprised to see the deputy unarmed, save for the hateful look on his round, shaven face. He spits and says, Asleep, was you? Lazy filth. I told Grant this was a waste of taxes. You get more than you deserve, Trog. Shoulda run you out with that bastard Edgar. Yeah, I reply. Too bad. Then that's not why you're here. You said Grant sent you. Said he had to send somebody. Got a number of complaints that you was missing this morning. I'm sure they'll be pissed when we tell them why. Damn Trog sleeping in, and now I got to waste my time checking on you. My head hangs. Useless. I'm sorry. Wait to the end to apologize, Trog. I got a message too, cause you wasn't at the market. Some trader down from Berg said he was looking for you. Said you owe him some goods. Van Edwin. Yeah, I know the man you're talking about. Then get your ass into town and pay him. If he collects his debts from the treasury, and I have to drag my ass out here and collect from you, that'll be license plenty to rough you up something good, as much as a blank banknote's worth. You catching on, Trog? Sure, I answer, resisting pointing out that a banknote from South isn't worth the paper it's printed on. My restraint doesn't stop the deputy spitting again, this time inside the cave, before turning toward the forest and township beyond. I wait and watch, squinting in the sunlight bright white on the snow until he's finally gone. Then it occurs to me like an afterthought. Why didn't I threaten to set him ablaze with a satchel of black flame? Strange. It's cold. Even after I shut the vault door against the harshness of the world. The fiery rage of my consciousness has been expunged, exiled, its torch taken up in the enigmatic realms of my mind as I pick Ogier's sword up off the floor and return it to its scabbard. Now my conscience sounds loud and clear. Midwit, how much time have you wasted? How much murkier have you made your own soul? I pack Van's salt and coal into a wheelbarrow, throw up my hood and think, 
I'm such a disappointment, as I leave the door open for Chaka, for when he wakes in case he wants to follow in Broken's footsteps. It's a long, cold, grueling walk through the woods. Every step of the way brings up flashes of my fights with Nastius and Domnall, and especially Verva. I add Grant to the list, too. He's got to be disgusted after so many complaints. And the yokels. It wasn't so long ago that they hated me for no reason at all. Well, now they have one. So when I arrive at the market a little before midday and find them smiling the same as the day before, I think they must be mocking me in secret. A few even attempt to pretend to be concerned. They approach me openly while I search for Van Edwin. Ask me where I was this morning and if everything is well. Of course, how they really feel exposes itself. Not one of them can stand to look at me directly without revulsion showing up on his face. I don't blame them. I feel the same way, and after spotting my reflection in a waste bucket left out overnight to freeze by the butcher's green employee, I think maybe it would be better for everyone if I tied a sack of coal to my ankle and jumped into the river. But then the curio trader sees me coming from several carts afar and starts calling my name all my way over. He's the only one in the market who keeps his smile upon seeing my face. If anything, his enthusiasm seems to increase as he takes in the sinister smoked glass coating the eye of Amgene. So that's what you look like without all the bandages. Wouldn't have recognized you but for your load. Nor would I have recognized his fair hair and broad northern features if not for the softness of his voice. I tell him that and ask where would he like the goods. Behind the cart is fine. He points out a spot, then immediately follows up. Here, let me help you. Van starts to climb out, but by the time he's on the ground, I've already dumped the barrow where he's specified and am busy digging through my purse for the cost of his lodgings. I look him in the eye and hand him a couple of silver coins. Prices have gone up, but this should be enough to stay anywhere you want in South as well as stable your horses. At least for a couple days. Edwin takes the money without counting it. Unheard of a merchant, all because he's fixed on me like a new curio purchase that he can't figure out. Am I the real deal or a fraudulent artifice? Seems he aims to appraise by interrogation. Canty, correct I'm if I'm wrong, but I was under the impression last we saw one another that you were blind. I was, I respond, but not anymore. Both of the trader's white blonde eyebrows jump. Not anymore? You don't hear that every day. You don't hear that ever. He glances about, a habit from dabbling in contraband transactions, I'm sure. So, was it fairies? Or did the alchemist do it? And I'm assuming it has something to do with that glass eye. Yes and no, I say, and explain the whole thing starting from broken in my expedition and ending with the surgery. The entire time Van is hanging out his cart window, listening close, almost falling a few times getting too engrossed in the story. When I get to the end, he asks me for more. That's all there is. Even if I pay you with marigold silver? I shrug, palms up. Like I said, I don't have any more. I wish I did. Reliving those moments made me forget my current conditions. Even if it was just a few minutes, I felt as though I weren't alone. I miss broken. I miss knowing that I've got friends if I need them. Pathetic. It's hardly been a day and I can't get by on my own without wanting to cry. Such weakness. Be a man, you damnable troglodyte. I tug my hood over my eyes to hide them from Edwin. Too bad, he says, oblivious to my distress. If you did, and we tithed some scribes from the church as copyists, I bet we could make a fortune on your story alone. And that's not to mention your treasure hoard. 
the Eye of Amgine, you said, and King Ogier's sword, Gerard the Giant Slayer's dragon lance and his bones? And since when can Nostius transmute mithril weapons? I didn't even think such a substance was real. You'll have to ask him about that yourself. I plan on it, Van says. He's always been a reliable customer and a good friend. But back to you. I don't know why I'm asking, but you wouldn't happen to be willing to part with anything? I'd give up my whole cart for just the lance head. I don't have it anymore. It pains me to confess, because I know the question that's bound to follow and the name I'm ashamed to say. I gave it to the girl, broken. The one I bought the hat for. The trader glanced about his cart again, this time not out of nervous habit but of curiosity. Yes, I remember her. Where is that adorable bugbear? Gone off on her own, left home for who knows where a few days ago. Edwin blinks, incredulous. Who knows where? And you just let her go? I didn't know until yesterday. She never said anything to me. Excuses. And now he's going to hate me too. How could I let a child run away armed with dangerous artifacts unless I'm the most irresponsible dolt that there is and has ever been? And pathetic. Weak. You do nothing but murk your own soul with these black emotions. You'll never unlock the power this way. You'll never be anything but a good-for-nothing trog. That's tragic, Van says and catches me off guard. You two seem to be doing pleasantly when I saw you in Marigold. You think maybe it's the eye? Children have a hard time dealing with transitions sometimes. My wife says my own little ones get twice as rambunctious during the change of the seasons because they know I'm coming home or leaving soon. What's your relation to the girl? If you don't mind me asking. Another sucker punch. Relation? What am I going to tell him that she's a thrall and I the leader of a pseudo-cult? Then I think maybe student and teacher, but the idea that I'm fit to teach anyone is absurd. If anything, I've learned more from her. I don't know how to answer that, Van. I took her in after her parents died and the village ran her out. What would that make us? He responds as if the answer is obvious. Oh, now it all makes sense. You're her adopted father. No wonder she ran off. We see this all the time in Berg. The winters are harsh, so it's common that the men fall ill working the season's crop and passive pneumonia. If they're not too old, their wives remarry come the spring, and oft times they've already got some children to their names, and the trouble those children give the new man is infamous. We'd probably have a hundred runaways every year if Berg weren't so remote and the weather so ruthless. I don't understand how that's meant to make me feel better. If I'm like her father and she ran away, doesn't that mean that I'm a failure? What I'm trying to say, he finishes, dismissing my question, is that you shouldn't blame yourself too much. About this age, something like this was bound to happen. All you can do is hope she comes back and in the meantime try to fix some of the problems you had. I think I understand, though it doesn't make me feel any less awful about myself. It'll take a couple pints of barley wine to dull those emotions. Nevertheless, I tell Van, thank you for saying that. I'll do my best to try to believe it, if I can, weak as I am. Of course, friend. And I'll keep my eyes open once I start on the road south. If she's gone to Marigold or Glassboro, she won't be difficult to spot out of the crowd. Speaking of Marigold, I did a little digging after we parted ways and picked up something I think will make for a great surprise when your girl finally does come home. He peeks around the wagon and beckons me closer, digs out an ancient stone-boxed tome. This, my adventurous friend, Van Edwin whispers, is an original historical record from the time of the great transmogrification written by historian Turnpin of Rhyme. It was quite difficult to obtain. I had to pay someone to lift it from the Union archives, 
but after you and Nostius killed that ogre, I knew I had some worthy customers on my hands. But I can already hear you asking me, Van, why do I care about another old book? The answer, Rhyme was located dead north of here, built right into the side of the mountains. That makes Turnpin part of the refugees who came right through here in flight of the miasma. And do you know where they thought they'd settle? I'll tell you. It was Bitter Ridge Mountain. Where's that? Take a guess, the merchant says, watching my face as I put the facts together. There's only one mountain range south of the gates. That means there's only one place, Old Holm. Looks to me like you figured it out. You're saying this turnpin guy wrote about the clan of the antler? Edwin nods, and it feels as though a hole's been blown right through my loneliness, as if I've stumbled upon some long-lost relative that yesterday I was sure was dead. How much? I'm sure to recoup your costs. It's got to be bloody expensive. Aye, Van says, but for you, my dear friend, I'm willing to cut a deal. I'm going to entrust you with this artifact to do what you will. And likewise, I trust that the next time I'm back in town, you'll have something a little extra for me. Something that only a true adventurer like you could acquire. All at once it fits together. Van's business model. Groom a few audacious prospectors to dig up the wealth from under the earth. He'd already started with Nostius in the Marigold expedition. And now I've been sold into becoming one of his what? Adventurers? I hear the title in my mind and for once today I feel pretty good. Even my conscience agrees. All right, Van. You've got yourself a deal. The merchant's grin is bigger than I've ever seen in my whole month of vision. Wonderful, my friend. Just wonderful, really. We'll need to draft a contract, of course, but you can let me handle the paperwork. Why don't we sign tonight over drinks at the King's Lodge? He hands me the stone-carved box wrapped in waxed linen. For you, my friend. And welcome to the Vanguard Acquisitions Company. I guess I'm a professional now after scrawling my name across the bottom of a contract that took me most of an hour to read. Not that it was long or overly complicated, quite the opposite, really. Compared to Turnpin's historical accounts, Van had drafted a simple, single-page document. What took so long was me. Prior to the meeting, I'd rented a table here in the King's Lodge common room. Same place we're sitting now, in a corner near the hearth and far from the door where I spent the whole afternoon studying the old tome. And like I said, it was slow going. I still have to sound out a lot of words, and it doesn't help that the spelling is different from what I learned reading Bilar's journal and the legends of Gerard the Giant Slayer. It's almost more like that ancient occult book, the way the historian talks, only more boring. How Broken could do it without a teacher is beyond me. I guess I never really appreciated her genius, or her patience, or her sheer power of will. After just an hour, my mind is struggling to make a semblance of the letters on the paper I just signed. I ask Grant to read it to me one more time before I hand it over to him to be notarized. He agrees, happy to fulfill his official duties and collect the transaction fees. He reads while I stare into the surface of my once bubbly barley wine, flat now and dark as honey. In its pewter tankard, I see my white reflection looking back at me, one eye a pinprick of evil light the other hidden in the heart of Oldholm, if Turnpin's history can be trusted. His description of the clan of the Antler seemed dubious at best. Primitive, he called them, without insight or wisdom, and employing only the most rudimentary of tools. And let it be known there is no faith among them sow for foyer of day and the light it brings. Only false magic bindeth them as kin, 
and this done by their women who are said to tend the eye of the mountain, the very same jewel to shadow King Ogier and bringeth about our sudden exile. Suspicious that there was no mention of the black flame, but then again, Turnpin wrote it before Old Home was made into a salty wasteland. Perhaps they hadn't invented it then, but this eye of the mountain he mentioned, could it really be the same as King Ogier's eye of Amgine? It seems impossible that my ancestors had such a powerful source of magic, yet lived and died in total obscurity, driven underground by mere human settlers, likely defectors from the historian's own party. Grant finishes rereading the contract a second time, asks me if I agree to the terms before he signs, seals, and collects his price. I tell him it's fine. For the remainder of my debt on the rabbit felt hat, the legends of Gerard, and the historical account of Turnpin of Rhyme. In addition to a biannual supply of salt, coal, and lodging costs, of which we've negotiated a deal with the King's Lodge to give Van a discount, I'm to pay the company, of which this contract makes me an official member, one antique or artifact appraised at 500 marigold golden coins, taxed at 1%, of course, for the transaction. So, Edwin says, half drunk and giddy over his future fortune, now that all the formalities are out of the way, I've been dying to ask if you found any leads toward your next adventure. I reply, hesitant to give any definitive answer. Besides the expedition with Nostius next summer? Maybe. It's hard to say. If Turnpin's centuries-old information is any good, there might be something close to home. Though even if that is the case, it'll be a couple months before I might find anything. And that's assuming the deepest tunnels aren't still flooded or entirely caved in. Take your time. The curio merchant smiles. I won't be back through south till the summer anyhow, and the work will be good for you. It'll keep your hands and mind busy till your friend returns. Part of me hopes he's right, that whether or not a second eye of Amgene is down there, that I'll dig so deeply that the rest of the world will disappear. The other part of me disagrees. It longs for a short delve and rapid plundering. Two eyes, that's it. The secret is finally mine after so many centuries. The power of Amgene, the destructive force of the Alcahest. Visions of a low, rolling valley, pocked by farms and hemmed by woodland, emerged into the theater of my mind. It felt more like a memory than imagination, almost as real as a crown cap hallucination like a dream. I see it through an observatory window and am filled with a hatred black and red with rage. Ignorant, weak, disgusting degenerates, rebels and thieves, the lazy and the murderous, they deserve destruction to be returned to the earth from which they rose. A set of milky white eyes stare pale from the shadows. Then there's a set of yellowed tusks, then a caustic stench, and a yipping a thousandfold more numerous than the band of ghouls who raided the catacombs. Your friend? asks Grant now that he's finished recording and sorting the notary fee. Does he mean Ashlyn? It's true I haven't seen her in town the past few days, though I attributed that to the inclement conditions and my busy schedule. I snap out of my vision, feel a bolt of lightning surge through my brain and into the eye of Amgine. Strange, the pain hasn't emerged the whole of the day, only at the mention of that name. Ashlyn? That's how she's recorded in the registry. I've since added the pseudonym Broken, for clarification purposes, though I hope that doesn't confuse any of my successors. I suppose it won't if she's left town. How long ago did she go? Abandoned property can be seized by the council after 180 consecutive days of unnotified absence, so I need to- Grant, 
I cut him off, staring full into his hard pink face. He averts his gaze to my right side, his dark brown eyes unable to tolerate the unfamiliar. How long have you known Broken's real name? He glances to Van Edwin to glean his reaction, but the merchant only shows his palms and shrugs. So, without context, he does as he's been trained and starts explaining. How long? Well, it's been 36 days since the election, and I officially came into my new duties the day after the election, which included documenting all the new arrivals into the town registry, as well as allocating or selling any publicly owned land or properties. So, my official review of the registry didn't start until 35 days ago. And I didn't come across Ashland's listing until the day after that because all names, associated taxable properties, town debts, and assets owed are listed chronologically. To answer your question, though, I've calculated that it's been 34 days since I rediscovered her name. A whole month? You knew for a whole month and you never told me? Grant nods, his eyes sliding further and further away from my left. Affirmative. I've known for more than a month. If you felt entitled to this information, you are within your rights as a citizen to file a complaint with the council. Though I do believe I had probable cause to assume that the girl knew her own name and assets. Wait, what do you mean by assets? Ashlyn inherited a house from her parents when they died. My father seized it shortly after, sold it, and logged the profit under her name to be collected when she comes into the age of majority, or if she and her guardian consent to collect. I grab the hilt of my sword to relieve my headache. It doesn't work, signifying that the pain is a result of secondhand obtuseness rather than the after-effects of magic surgery. Closing my eyes, I try rubbing my temples instead. How much does South owe her? Thirty marigold gold, ten silver, and eight copper pieces, minus a one percent tax for the processing fee upon the day of settlement. Van pats me on the shoulder. Congratulations, my friend. No better luck than stumbling backwards into a pile of gold. Yeah, I suppose, I utter. Not that it matters if she never comes back. Don't think about that, you stupid troglodyte. Have the foresight to see the future bright with fire and flame. That's right. I remember Van's words of encouragement. All you can do is hope she comes back, and in the meantime, try to fix some of the problems you had. Problems. I try my best to recall what Broken said within the catacombs. She was afraid, I remember. She was afraid that I wouldn't need her anymore, and I made that fear come true. But what can I do to fix that now? Position yourself beyond your present mortal power, says a voice not mine, nor Edwin's, nor even my conscience's. Bear a load too great for your soul, a load that you must share to carry forward. Struggle with a weight under whose pressure you will grow, together. At once... A grave weight releases from behind the eye. Another falls on my shoulders. I know I won't like what it is I must do. I try and fight it. But what if I don't want to lead that bunch of self-aggrandizing fools? The mysterious voice answers, That is how you know you have to. So, Van Edwin continues, What are you thinking of doing with your new fortune? Going to get the girl a present? Something like that. But first, I owe quite a few apologies. Glancing out the window, I see the sun's already set. In the morning, then, first thing after selling my cartload, I'll make life right with Nostius and Domnal, and Verva. I'm looking forward to talking with her the least. But that's for tomorrow. Just now, I turn to Grant and say, Thank you for coming out and notarizing our contract and for sending your deputy to check on me today. I'm sorry for any trouble I caused being absent this morning. The constable meets my eyes, then averts them, more confused than afraid. 
Of course, I'd agree to act as notary. It is my duty as constable and elected official. The same goes for this morning. The patrons were worried is all. No one knew why or where you'd gone, not even the Apothecary's Guild, so it was my duty to make sure nothing had happened. I'd do the same if it were anyone. I carry Grant's words with me all the way home. It's a cold march alone in the dark, but the moon glows enough to guide my way through the township streets. Light shines from the windows as well, and I can hear the revelry of late-night drinkers, the chopping of wood around the backs of houses, and the thuds of a deputy's partisan butting the ground like a walking cane. Further out, white canvas tents sprout from the shadows. They remind me of Marigold during the hob quarantine with their fires going hot late into the night and their carts piled high with personal belongings. I'm not sure what's more amazing that there are more immigrants now than native southerners or that I'm only now noticing just how rapidly their numbers are growing. As I reach the forest edge, I wonder how soon these trees will be cut back, and how far, likely all the way to the river and perhaps beyond. Maybe one day Old Holm and Black Lake and the Vault of the Black Flame will all be part of the township proper. I remember Grant's words again, that he'd have done it for anyone, and think, or maybe we're already part of the township, and I just didn't notice. It's about an hour by the time I'm through the forest and around the west end of Black Lake. The door to the vault is open, same as I left it. A regret. Much of the warm air has escaped the cave and left a chill in its place. On the bright side, it looks like my makeshift work is actually worth something if I manage it correctly, that is. With that in mind, I close the door behind me, search for the lantern, then remember that I burnt all the oil last night. That's all right, I tell myself as I grope along the shelf for one of Nastius's chem lamps. One is all that's left, broken must have taken the others. That only leaves me an hour's light to find salt and coal for tomorrow's market. I'll just have to make the most of it. Pickaxe and sack loaded into my new used barrow. I start blind down Old Holmes' deeper tunnels, guided by the echoes of its squeaky wheel. It takes a few minutes of stumbling into stalagmites, but eventually I normalize to navigating without sight. It's frightening how quickly I've become reliant on the sensation. Though likewise, it's comforting to know I can go without it if necessary. After all, what are the long-term consequences of constant contact with the eye? Not good considering what happened to King Ogier, and Maddock wouldn't touch it for a second himself. And to think if the old king got a hold of a second eye. If someone as powerful as him was driven mad by one, I don't even want to consider what might happen if it's me who gets the second, assuming my ancestors really had something so incredible. Yet it sets me to wondering, if they possess such vision, how could they have allowed themselves to be brought to extinction? Surely they could have divined the emergent dangers of nature, foresaw the risks of storing too much powder, the potential for the mountain to shake, and the threat of underground reservoirs. Then it occurs to me that perhaps my assumptions are wrong. I'd always imagined that an accidental blast of black flame had caused the cave-ins and the flooding and the poisoning of the lake. But what if it wasn't? What if they tried to use the eye to create the Alkahest, and this was the aftermath? A fun story, but I don't have a damn clue to go on aside from what Turnpin has told me, and as I said, I'm skeptical of the dead man's history. Something about it doesn't seem right, but when I try to remember what things were like before I was exiled from the inner caves, 
I'm reminded that those memories are lost to a decade of eating crown caps. It's about time. I should be deep enough into Old Home to find some coal or rock salt deposits and maybe some cave puddles with mushrooms growing too. An hour will be plenty of time to fill a barrow load, I think, now that I'm here, reaching into my cloak pocket for my very last chem lamp. With a twist of the top of the glass cylinder, the divider cracks inside, and the phosphorescent chemicals illuminate the wet cavern walls and glistening ceiling. For a moment, my blindness changes hands from darkness to light. I close my eyes and hear something scratching not far in the distance, like little claws on rocks. Chaka. So the ghoul didn't leave after all. He's just been down here, digging. For what? I can't stop myself from wandering deeper into this passage that, as my eyes adjust, shows itself to be entirely unnatural. It's one of the ancient tunnels made by the Clan of the Antler, caved in during the disaster then dug out by one strangely conscientious ghoul. I don't know what would motivate the Hob to work so hard, but whatever Chaka thinks is down here must be even better than food. Had he been eating his normal portions of corpses, the air would be thick with the ghoul's caustic, gaseous secretion. But there's not so much as a whiff of miasma. In fact, I feel as though I can breathe easier the closer I move toward the source of the scratching. Likewise, the further I delve, the more ornate and preserved are the troglodyte ruins. Though the floor is thick with mud, salt, and sediment, the walls show numerous, albeit eroded, bas-reliefs. Some seem to be human, or perhaps troglodyte, it's impossible to tell, standing like pillars in support where the vaulted ceiling has yet to collapse. Other figures are not so familiar. Their shape is like that of men, only squat and hunched, and with noses as large as half their faces, and around their necks and wrists and ankles. It's difficult to tell from the eroded stone and in the green chemical glow, but they seem to be bound by some kind of fetters. Iron, most likely the same as the corrupted kobold locked beneath the miasmatic mountains. So it appears it wasn't just the old king who kept fairy slaves. I'm at least ten minutes descending the smooth, winding decline by the time I catch up to Chaka. I draw my sword and leave my barrow behind before I'm close enough to spot him, really before he's close enough to spot me. Normally he's a lovable little hob, but I expect to come upon him nearly starved and likely rabid. So when I finally round the bend where some of the bas-reliefs are entirely missing, I'm shocked to find him strong and healthy, half again as tall as before, and with claws as thick and black as the head of a patinaed pickaxe. He's busy cleaving apart a fallen vault when I arrive, slashing away slabs of stone and tossing them aside onto the strange, squat, blue-black bones scattered all over the floor. Chaka? I whisper, ready to strike in case the hob decides to add me to the skeletal pile. The ghoul yips, his voice as high and bright as always, though as he turns from his digging and looks my way, the voracious gleam in his pupilless carmine eyes freezes my reflexes like the first breath of a frightened wild elk. My body locks, then releases all at once in a jerking panic. My sword arm cocks back and the point punches through something hard and soft all at the same time. I hear a grunt from behind me. Chaka lunges with jaws open and fangs coated in a thick foaming slaver deep violet in the chem light. I try to swing, but the blade stays stuck inside whatever it is I've stabbed. Get out of the way, you idiot. But it's too late. Claws flash either side of my face and into the thing behind me. Then the hob's jaws snap over top of my head and I'm showered in a warm, shimmering fluid like liquid emerald in the phosphorescence. 
I try my hardest not to vomit at the sounds that follow the guttural sputtering of the fairy having its throat eaten out while still alive and drowning on its own bleeding lungs. Trolls, I realize. The clan of the antler must have captured the mountain trolls as slaves and sealed them into the walls among the bas reliefs, at least until the iron fetters corroded. That's my theory, anyway. I don't see chunks of rust like there was beneath Ogier's mountain, but it might be hiding under the mud and sediment. Whatever the case, now I know where these skeletons came from. It seems that ghouls are phased natural predators given the slaughter on going behind me. My conscience agrees. Of course they are! What do you think I made them for? I jerked the sword from the troll's corpse and watched the bloody surface erupt into bright white flames. Broken was right. You're the soul of King Ogier, I say. Chaka yips, then continues his noisy gorge. The sword says nothing, so I repeat myself. When still the haunting spirit refuses, I try a different tact. These creatures we've been calling ghouls were once known as gnolls. They were your most loyal soldiers, and you fooled them into eating the flesh of fairies until their souls became changed and their flesh transmogrified. A new breed of hob. The miasma was a side effect discovered when you had to resort to feeding them human flesh when fey were hard to find. A rather useful side effect, yes, replied the soul of the old king from within the mithril sword. So it seems you can see into my memories as well, Kanti, Lord of Fear, and the calamitous Black Flame. Thanks for confirming that Broken was right, and that I'm a complete idiot to have fallen for this. I sheathe the blade and glance to see if Chaka is still eating. The troll bones are all picked clean, and the ghoul is just finishing licking the darkening fairy blood from the floor, and his claws. It's terrifying, and this is the work of only one friendly, well-fed knoll. An army of these things could slaughter an entire city in an hour. And how many of these were in the catacombs, exactly? More than twenty, I'm sure. And how many thousands must be hiding on the mountains to keep it covered in miasma so long? Good thing that Fey are in short supply these days, I think. Then remember that we just unsealed an entire mountain of trolls. And who knows what that loose kobold is doing. I've got to go back and tell the others. But first, I'm tackled by my own gluttonous hob, who, as mercilessly as he murdered the troll who snuck up behind me, proceeds to lick every last globule of Fey blood from my body. Ogier laughs while I wince against the stinging of miasmatic slaver from Chaka's tongue. Always late to figure things out, aren't you, Kanti? Blind troglodyte, even with the eye you cannot see past the end of your nose. Always having to be rescued by others, never able to achieve your goals. Where went your fire, Kanti? I can see it yet smoldering in the depths of your heart, your will to revenge. Yeah, I start, Chaka climbing off me now that I'm clean. I watch him sniff around the tunnel and think how lucky I am that he was here to save me. What would I have done if I'd run into three or four trolls at once? And without Van Edwin's help, I wouldn't even know to come down here. The same can be said of Grant asking me to come with him to Marigold. Now I've got the Guildhall and Nastius and Domnall and Virva. Even if I don't like her or the rest of the mystics, I can't deny they've been kind toward me, just like most the yokels of the township. I let that fire go out a while ago once I realized I could actually do something to change my life, to change Brokens. I'm not the same person whose memories you see. That trog was so weak and bitter that he couldn't stand on his own two feet. I shove myself upright and round the bend where I left my wheelbarrow. 
How much time is left to the light? Maybe half? I heft the pickaxe with just one hand, let the shaft rest on my shoulder. But now there are people counting on me, people to whom I owe an apology for letting you convince me to fall back on those old feelings. I turn the wheelbarrow about and call to Chaka, then begin back up the passage. Weakness, then. That is your decision? You're going to allow yourself to remain pathetic and powerless, even when the Alkahest is just within your grasp? After a few steps, I glance over my shoulder and call the ghoul again. He's not coming. Something has him distracted. I hear him sniffing and scratching at the rock. So I drop the pickaxe into the barrow and head back, hoping I can coax him to leave his troll hunting for tomorrow. I shout, as much to Chaka as King Ogier. Come on, we don't want to let the townsfolk down two days in a row. We'll have plenty of time for troll and treasure hunting tomorrow once our responsibilities are done. The ghoul's ears prick up, though as he turns from the fallen vault, it's clear he's looking not at me, but over my shoulder. My first instinct is to think another troll has snuck behind us, but when I turn, hand on hilt, ready to hack at the fey, there's nothing but empty air. A second later, Chaka bolts up the winding passageway, bowling past me and yipping gleefully. What's he after? I don't have time to wonder because fewer than two steps in pursuit of the hob, I'm arrested by four sets of stout, dark-skinned arms that sprout from the walls and pin my hands to my waist so I can't reach my sword or my satchels of black flame. I call the ghoul's name. No good. He's far and away and probably can't distinguish between my cries for help and the four trolls' malevolent guffaws. Up close, the stone fairies are even uglier than me. Their giddy teeth shine fluorescent ochre green and their beards a deeper color like sheaves of fresh grass hanging down from their nostrils. Their skin is rocky granules, dark purple and gray and black, and every inch of their arms and shoulders and hunched backs are thick with muscle. I catch one by the eyes, murky as raw onyx, his laughter like gravel all the while glaring down his stone wedge of a nose. Let go of me, Chaka! I shout, struggling uselessly while they drag me toward the collapsed section of tunnel. Ogier's screaming inside my mind for me to draw the sword, berating me for being caught off guard, for being too weak to slay a few silver-blooded degenerates. Why don't you do something, then? Draw the sword and give me possession of your corporeal form. Not a chance, old man. I'm not falling for that one. Then we'll both be trapped down here forever. Do it, you stupid trog. Fine. I try to force my arm a little closer to the hilt, but the trolls are having none of it. The two on my left tighten their vice grips, squeeze the air out of my lungs and bruise my forearm down to the bone. I cry out, and they continue their laughter, the sound resonating throughout the ruin till we reach the end of the collapsed pass and meld into the rock. At once, it's like I'm dunked into a pool of icy water with the surface frozen solid over my head. If before my lungs were crushed, now I'm flattened by the weight of an entire mountain pressing in from every direction on every nerve inside my body. It's ice and daggers and a bullet to the brain all at the same time. I'm afraid the eye of Amgine is about to burst out of my socket. Then as fast as the massive compression began, it ends. My first sense to recover is touch, and as soon as I feel that my limbs are free, I rip Ogier's sword from the scabbard and slash the air. Nothing. Damn it! What good is a magic sword if I can't ever hit anything? Maybe I should hand it over to Van Edwin to pay off my contract if I ever make it out of here, that is. It's not my fault you're incompetent, Trog, and you could at least pretend to be more confident. Think when we make it out of here.
And where is here? I ask aloud just to hear the sound of my voice. It's eerie how quiet it's become all of a sudden, especially after being engrossed in the troll's terrible laughter. I hold up the chem lamp which seems to have survived melding through stone. The glow illuminates a small stretch of tunnel in the same vein as what we were in before. Same style of bas-reliefs along the walls. Four are missing. Now I know where the assailants came from. But that doesn't help my prospects for escaping. Nor does the collapsed section on the other end. We're trapped, and unless Chaka's coming back, there's no way out of this ruinous tomb. I sheathe the sword, cross my legs, and sit with my back against the cold, damp cavern wall where once a troll was clandestinely imprisoned. Here, with the chem lamp losing its luminescence on my lap, I sit and consider what I'm going to say to Broken and the others to make it up to them for my rueful disposition. What? Have you given up so soon? You're just going to let someone else come and rescue you? Again? You're just going to accept this weakness, this impotence, if you can read my intentions, how can you be so simultaneously wrong and arrogant? I suppose you have to try to see what the other thinks and feels, otherwise you're stuck with your limited perception. For instance, you're not a trog, and you don't have a nose. There's no way you'd know how little air is in here. It's a few hours at most. So that's your excuse. There is nothing you can do. So you're justified in waiting for someone else to carry your burden. Don't try to feed me such ballocks. It was that very attitude which nearly brought Sealand to ruin during my reign. Every single farmstead township was the same, begging the king's justice at every instance of lawlessness, the king's mercy whenever there came a famine, as if I could save them from their own weakness and negligence. Hadn't it been enough to keep them safe from the Fay? Ungrateful ingrates. That's right, I saw in your memories. That's why you want the power of the Eye of Amgine. You'd impose your tyranny on the country again, and someone like Gerard would come about to stop you from spreading the miasma and the hobs. Wrong, you foolish troglodyte. Now it's you who is blind. I was not the inventor of hobs. Their ilk thrived long before even my father's time, nourished by the self-same degenerates who came to me to plead protection. My laws brought about order, and with order, even the weak could be kept from despair. If my soldiers had to execute those who refused to obey, the people should have been thankful. Those rebels would have lured monsters from the dark hearts of men worse than ogres and murderous goblins. You've seen what can come from man's deepest desperations. Bilar's monster. Yes, you're starting to understand. Now perhaps you can see the absurdity of calling my ban on occult practices oppressive, or worse, the claim that my purging of the fairies was genocide. Ridiculous. It was an extermination, and the filthy fey are nothing but pests, human-shaped plagues upon the land. But many of my people were too gullible and stupid. They were tricked by the fairy pestilence to think that lice and adders could be good for their health, because a few occasionally cleaned up a house. I couldn't make them understand, but I could make them obedient. But doesn't that make you just as bad? How many people lost their homes because of the miasma? And how many citizens did your soldiers kill? More than the Fey and the Hobbs together, I bet. And just look at us now. Ever since the Great Transmogrification, we've been getting along just fine without you. The soul of King Ogier laughs. You truly believe that? Then listen closely to my wisdom, you foolish trog. You called me arrogant, and in this you are right, but I've earned the right to acknowledge my strength. 
I did not merely inherit my father's title. He conquered this island from the races of men, and I conquered it from the plague of Fay. The precipice on which I stand I climbed myself. But you, when you claim the prosperity of the provinces, it is something you can only say in willful ignorance of those who came before you, whose law yet presides over the land, whose order at last created some sliver of independence where before were only parasites. The old king's law? They are the rules that have kept disaster from submerging Sealand back into the abyss from which it was dredged, and the phrase, Great Transmogrification, I scoff at the notion. There never was such an event as that. Then how do you account for the rapid emergence of gremlins and the clan of the antler suddenly becoming troglodytes? Simple. I'm the one who discovered transmogrification. And your people? There was nothing sudden about their change. Generations of living conditions can shape a man slowly, but in much the same way as with gremlins, hobs, and elves. They were a human aberration and nothing else. That you do not understand this proves the degeneration of society since my fall from power. Soon my laws will fade and falter without me there to lend them force. Then you'll all descend as your inhuman technology betrays you. It will be mankind who becomes the slaves of the fairy pestilence. All that is thanks for freeing them from the brink of destruction. Unless I find the second eye of Amgine and return the eye and the sword to my body. Reunited and with my power complete, I'll have no need for an army of hobs or soldiers or miasma. I'll cure the fairy scourge by my own strength and bring all of Sealand into security and order. Yeah, that's not happening. I'm gonna bury you in this cave and pray to the spirits that no one finds your sword for another few hundred years. Fool. Don't you see the catastrophe lurking at your feet? What do you think will happen when the rest of the gnolls awaken from their slumber and mobilize south? The miasma will spread, and the fairies will rebel against man's oppression of nature and enslavement of their kind. The gremlins will rise up and make elf servants of their masters, that is, if they don't just murder them. And the worst comes after. Those left alive and in hiding will inevitably transmogrify as they watch their families captured, killed, and starved. This even you can know if you dare look into your own soul, Kanti, and see beneath the unmerked waters the spirit of vengeance as part of the nature of man. Why should I believe anything you say, is how I'd like to reply. But the king's last claim makes me pause. It's the same feeling I get with certain crown cap visions, a kind of sickness in the pit of my stomach, like a deep hollowing from which I'm hit with pangs of guilt. My real voice of conscience, I realize now, only unlike before on the road to Marigold or under anesthesia on the guild work table, I'm awake and sober as I experience the dream. Eyes closed to the dying lamp glow, I look inward toward the shadowy surface of a lake. Around its edges, failures float thick and impenetrable. But at the center, the murk has broken up enough that I see a light shining at the bottom. I reach for it. Yet below the surface, the light is not alone. It is under the possession of the spirit Ouroboros. Upon my recognition, the great serpent of chaos releases its tail and swims, jaws open, for where I kneel with arm plunged beneath the surface. I try to withdraw my hand from the water, terrified, but the fear has me paralyzed, save for the reaching arm, my shoulder, my head, any part of me brave enough to dive inside the mouth of the monster as it emerges. Its maw shuts and the light shines brighter here in the belly of the beast, closer to my grasp, yet still out of reach, still in possession of an aspect of me, 
the Lord of Fear. He stands, black-clad, wearing the skull of an elk, black flame in one hand, the eye of Amgene in the other. He speaks to the image of myself that I saw on the road, thick with muscle and covered in coal dust. He asks, which of us shall burn in fire, and which of us shall be granted vision? The eye, King Ogier's spirit cries out, take the eye, complete the power. I hardly hear the old king, contemplating my prior self's question, questioning whether or not such a dichotomy is even valid. Then a wave of sympathy washes over me. Have I always been this way, so pitiable and afraid to face the world that I had to hide behind the mask of my ancestors? Maybe it would be better to let that old self burn away, to give him the flame and take the eye for myself. But then I think, if I had just had the vision to see how easy it would have been to make my life better, I wouldn't have wasted all those years sitting around eating crown and dealing to Edgar. I could have been so much more than I am now, if only I'd have been there to tell myself how. I wouldn't have been swallowed up by the spirit of vengeance. I'll take the flame, I say. I hope the eye helps you along your journey. At once, the Lord of Fear's headdress falls away, and he begins weeping into his hands. The flame and eye vanished. He's blubbering something, but I can't make it out through the sobs. So I step closer and closer till I've got my arms around him, and I can hear the words, Please forgive me. The tears that flow from my eyes dissolve my reverie into the present darkness, the green glow of the chem lamp long dead. How long has it been, I wonder, lightheaded? The air is thin and my breathing quickened to make up for how little is satisfying my lungs. I look to where the caved ceiling blocks my path, set Ogier's sword aside to the spirit's protest, but I can't afford any distractions. There's only enough air left to try one time to transmute that substance which reduces all others to their base elements, the alkahest. I stand and steal the deepest breath I've ever taken, face the obstacle in the path of my enlightenment, see myself in it, a vessel salvaged from the purest components of my very own soul. I open the magnum opus, the eye which seeth beneath the bottom of the ocean, the eye which lieth beneath the bottom of the sea. Hearken, thou higher than high and lower than low, spirit enantiodromia, inspire me with mercurial wisdom. Open the wellsprings, thou spirit Ouroboros, and let loose thy bedlams from the womb of earth and ocean. Thou spirit Amgine, grant me vision to fathom thy world of obscurities. Show me he who hath seen the eye on the inside, the riddle capture of the Alkahest. My chest is on fire as I squeeze out those last few syllables, and I'm not sure if it's the transmutation working or the dearth of air becoming further stale. But what is certain is that I feel the brain lightning surge to my left from my right, and I see faded in my field of vision an image like a kind of blinding white wraith reaching out, placing what seems to be a hand upon my forehead. The touch burns worse than my lungs, like I'm being branded. Realization emerges from my memory the same as the Ouroboros burst to the surface of the waters of my soul. The black flame is the Alkahest. Yet before I can retrieve a satchel from my pocket to act as conduit to embody the process, my concentration is broken by the call of a familiar voice, albeit muffled by quite a bit of stone. Conti, she yells, loud and deep as her girl voice will let her, and I try to call back. But alas, the air is too thin. I cough and choke without getting out a syllable. Did I just foil my only chance? More sounds sneak through the stone. It's that faithful hob, Chaka, yipping and cleaving great slabs from the fallen vault with his obsidian black claws. 
If only I'd have waited. Now, my consciousness is fading. There's no way, even for the Fey blood augmented Chaka, to clear the rubble fast enough to stop my suffocation. I stagger forward, lean against the collapsed ceiling, and think that I should at least be grateful that she came back after all. I'm sorry I never got the chance to apologize. The irony makes me laugh, but I can't. So I wheeze breathlessly instead, slump against the rocks, rest my head flush with the stone. Through it, between a couple great ghoulish cleaves, I hear a scream. Chaka! Help! Then, Enantiodromia! In an instant, I know it's those same four trolls who tossed me in here, and now they've got broken. A voice speaks from within. The Lord of Fear, he says. I won't fail her. Not again. And as if I've found some last gasp of air, I feel my arms shove on their own against the rocks to stand up and stumble to where I drop the sword of Ogier. I pick it up and draw the blade and am at once inundated with beratement. This I eliminate from my conscious focus. There is no time. I retrieve a satchel of black flame and hold it toward the fallen vault, sword pointed behind it to act as an athame. Calling out to the old king, I command he lend me his power. Finally, he responds. And as he does, I feel his spirit touch the eye, not of Amgene, but the one branded on my forehead. The satchel erupts, and from it black flame expands in a roaring storm cloud loud as a death wand's explosion. The fallen stone turns molten, then at once into gas and a glossy black substance that rings the tunnel. A warm gust rushes past my face, reeking first of rotting cabbage and then the sweet of fresh air. My eyes adjust to green glow of a chem lamp. At last I find my voice call out, Broken! You're safe, she says in return, covered in shimmering fluid turning darker by the second. All around her are troll corpses and bones, both Fay and Gerard's, behind, a noisily feasting double-sized Chaka. She smiles and runs into my arms, and I stumble forward to meet her, crying, trying to tell her I'm sorry for being such an ass. I'm sorry too, she starts. I shouldn't have run away, but I didn't know I was supposed to rescue you until I ate some mushrooms and asked Gerard about it. But even then, I didn't understand until the wizard baker said that I was the same as Ross, and that somebody got shot because I was. Because I wasn't brave. I reply, entirely befuddled, it's all right. I'm just glad that you're safe. You'll have to fill me in on the rest later. We separate. Then something occurs to me. When did you get so damn articulate? I've always been this way, she says. You just never noticed before, probably because you were blind. Can't he? Yeah, what is it, I answer, chuckling at her comment. How did Chaka get so big? And what happened to your eye? When did you get that mark on your forehead? And how did you melt the rocks like that? Have you been carrying that sword this whole time? Has it told you to do anything evil? I bet it led you into this trap. She goes on and on for the next half hour while I dig out a couple of deposits for the morning's market. I'm exhausted, but I want this chance to catch up with what's happened with her. And if I stop moving, I feel like I'll collapse for the next 12 hours. I've got a wheelbarrow full by the time I've answered her questions as best I could. Though for some, all I could say is that I didn't know. Was that truly the spirit Amgine who branded me with an eye on my forehead? Or was that just part of my delirious visions, and the brand a byproduct of producing the Alkahest? As for the Black Flame, I'm afraid to tell her what I did, as afraid as I am to try it again. She was right, after all, about the soul of evil King Ogier residing within the sword. I don't want to disappoint her further by telling her I gave him access to the eye in order to pull off the transmutation. 
So I'm glad as we return to the vault proper that she's telling me about a new friend she made that she wants to save from some gangsters in Glassboro. But it's not just gangsters, she says whispering now. It's Dr. Edgar, he's selling his crown cap elixir and turning people into thralls. That son of a bitch. As soon as I hear his name, I get a taste on my tongue worse than a mouthful of miasma. I try to imagine having Chaka rip him apart or annihilating him with the true black flame, but just now I'm too tired. There's too much to say. I haven't even mentioned my decision to actually teach that useless bunch of charlatans. I'll worry about it after dealing with matters at hand. We'll talk with Grant about Edgar in the evening after we sleep. Why not after the market? Because after market, we're going to visit a little girl named Ashlyn who left you quite the present. A present? Broken's voice jumps. What is it? What is it? Anything 30 gold pieces can buy. 